0: In Hebrews 11, the Bible says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they uh, saw he was a proper child, and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasure of sin for a season esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Let's look at Moses this evening. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the life lessons we can take from the story of Moses. I believe everyone in attendance in the room tonight knows the story, or some online, some online might not, and so Lord, as we look at this, help us to be reminded of a, a, a familiar story, but Lord, maybe see some new truths. God, we sure love you, and we're thankful that you love us, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Hebrews 11 is all about faith, and uh, faith is uh, one of those things that if I were to grab the average church member who attends on a Sunday morning and yank them off the pew and Put them uh, up on the platform in front of everyone and say to them, what is faith? Most people would struggle to give you a decent answer. And uh, a lot of the answers that people would give would be an answer that looks, you know, sounds super pious and super spiritual. And uh, they'd wax eloquent with it. But faith it's not so much about defining faith as it is, how do you live it? Give me the practical, Pastor. God, give us the practical in your word. I want to be a man of faith. You men want to be men of faith, no doubt. Ladies, you want to be women of faith. What's that look like in your daily living? How does that operate? How does that work? So God says, let me define it, or describe it, rather, in verse 1, and then let me give you example after example after example of people who lived it and you can see what faith being lived out looks like furthermore he is saying here um uh, abel was not great because abel was great abel was great because abel believed in god same is said for enoch and and for noah and abraham and isaac and jacob and joseph and now moses all of these men and women and sarah as well as in this passage Um, All of these men and women that are listed here in Hebrews chapter 11 are great, not because of anything in their flesh. They're great because they believed in God, even when things got tough. And so now we turn our attention to Moses. And we see how Moses was a man of faith. He was a man of faith. Let's jump in tonight uh, to the outline. If you've got a prayer bulletin, I encourage you to, fill in the outline as we go here. Notice point number one, faiths stand. Faiths stand. If you're going to be a man or woman of great faith, at some point you're going to have to take a stand for what is right. This is where a lot of people jump off on faith. You know, I'll go to church and show my faith, but until i'm persecuted and you know what then i can just watch church online at home um I'll, I'll uh i'll hand out gospel tracts and invite people to church until it's against the law and then you know i'm, I'm out uh, i'll stand up for what's right until i'm going to be persecuted a little bit and then i'll back away faith doesn't just do what's right when it's convenient faith does what's right when it isn't convenient because faith says god i'm going to trust you that when i do right that you're going to take care of me. And, Lord, that you're going to allow only to happen to me what you want to happen to me. Faiths stand. As a young man, uh, I remember being 13, 14 years old. I lived in the state of Alabama. I shared this with uh, my son and, and uh, another man here at the church this week. But I was 13, 14 years old, and the first time I ever heard a dirty joke was at a Christian school. Can you believe that? went to a Christian school and I heard dirty jokes. There was a boy in the school, um, uh, his name was Lucas. And Lucas sat at the lunch table and um, he sat there with me. I was 13, 14 years old and he sat there with me and several other boys and he just reeled off dirty joke after dirty joke after dirty joke. And it was the first time in my sheltered life I had ever heard these type of, of filthy jokes. And I remember sitting there laughing but feeling filthy. I remember sitting there thinking, you should say something. I remember sitting there thinking to yourself, you should take a stand for what's right. I remember then thinking to myself, if you can't do that, you should at least get up and go sit somewhere else. I'm ashamed to say, I did none of that. I just sat there and listened to the jokes. Do you know some of those jokes are still imprinted in my mind and I can't get rid of them? Because I didn't take a stand? Faith takes... A stand. Now, when you take a stand, you don't have to be a jerk about it. Right? I didn't need to stand up on top of the table and stick my long Baptist finger in Lucas' face and say, How dare you tell those jokes in this Christian school? Shame on you! That wasn't the answer either. Sometimes just standing up and walking away and pulling him to the side privately and saying, Hey man, you can't do that. This is a Christian school. Is enough. But faith takes a stand. Where did Moses learn to take his stand? Letter A, notice, his parents' rebellion. His parents' rebellion. And I mean rebellion in the good sense. We need people who will stand up against wrong and rebel against wrong. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to talk that way. I'm not going to act that way. I'm not going to live that way. You can throw the Christmas party at work where all the drinking is and, and all the rightest lifestyle is. I'm not going. And if that means it costs me a promotion, it costs me a promotion. I'm not going to do those things. I'm not going to live that way. I, and look, you're just going to have to accept that I am not going to go with the culture of the world. I will take a stand. Look at verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child, and they were not afraid of the king's commandments. Turn back over to Exodus chapter 2 and verse number 1. Exodus chapter 2 and verse number 1. Well, we know the book of Exodus, or the exit, this is the story of how the Israelites left Israel, uh, rather, left Egypt. And they left Egypt uh, by way of a man named Moses. So the story begins with Moses and his birth. Look down in chapter 2, verse 1. And there, was a, and there went a man of the house of Levi and took to wife a daughter of Levi. And the woman conceived and bare a son. And when she saw him that he was a goodly child... She hid him three months. Now, you back up into chapter one, and you can read the account there that Pharaoh was becoming intimidated by the Israelites, and so he had, this Pharaoh knew not Joseph, Joseph had passed. This Pharaoh took the Israelites and he enslaved them. And then they continued, the more he oppressed them, the more babies were born. What do you know? He's oppressing them and there's a baby boom. And I think there's probably a good reason for that. But there's a baby boom. And now Pharaoh's even more scared. So what's his answer? He calls in the midwives that serve the Hebrew women. He says, if it's born a boy, take him and throw him in the river. And the women refused to do that. And so the command came out, you will kill the boys or I will punish you. So uh, it became uh, the culture where they had to throw the baby boys in the river. Now, before you go throwing stones at the Israelites who did throw their babies in the river, can you imagine being put in that spot? Can you imagine being told, we're watching over you, and if you give birth to a boy and you don't kill that boy, we'll kill you. How much do you value your life? And listen, I'm sure it hurt to see those babies thrown in that water and killed. But boy, I I don't want to have to be in that spot to make that choice. Now, um, can we see where where his parents had to take a step of faith to keep their son? Their life was in danger. Look at verse number 2. And the woman conceived and bare a son, and when she saw him that he was a goodly child, she hid him three months. They must have had really good insulation in that house. Amen? And when she could not uh, longer hide him, she took for him an ark of bulrushes and dabbed it with slime and with pitch and put the child therein, and she laid it in the flags by the river's bank. By the way, you know what you call a bassinet in Spanish? You call it a moises. That's that's what a bassinet or a basket is. They call a bassinet a moises in Spanish, or a Moses. Um, Verse 4, And his sister stood afar off to wit what would be done to him. And the daughter of Pharaoh came down to wash herself at the river. And her maidens walked alone by the river's side. And when she saw the ark among the flags, she sent her maid to fetch it. And when she had opened it and saw the child, and behold, the babe wept. And she had compassion on him and said, "'This is one of the Hebrews' children.'" I love the opportunist that um, Moses' sister is. "'Then said his sister to Pharaoh's daughter, "'Shall I go and call to thee a nurse of the Hebrew women?' Uh, uh, that she may nurse the child for thee. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. And the maid went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said unto her, Take this child away and nurse it for me, and I will give thee thy wages. And the woman took the child and nursed it. So she has a baby. She hides it in her home for three months. Moses' cry is getting so loud that it can't be covered. So she creates a bassinet. She she pitches it, uh, it within and without the slime, and she sets Moses in it. She sets him in the river, and she leaves the baby's fate to God's sovereignty. And the sister follows it as she rolls down the river, and sure enough, the river runs by Pharaoh's palace, and out comes Pharaoh's daughter to take a bath, and she goes down into the into the river, and she picks up the basket, and what is in the basket but a soon-to-be prophet? Um, do you know who the greatest lady financier in the Bible was? It was Pharaoh's daughter. She went down to the bank and she drew out a profit. Amen. Um, I got that from my dad. No, I, I didn't get that from my dad. But that's a joke my dad would tell. So um, I went down to the bank and drew out a profit. So she picks up little baby Moses. And have you ever had a baby kitten or a baby a, a puppy a, 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 a roll up on your uh, porch and they're hungry and you know it just grabs hold of heartstrings and oh can we keep it, Dad? Can we keep it? Mom, can we keep it? She picks up this Hebrew boy, and she must have run to dad and said, Dad, can I keep him? Can I keep him? Can I keep him? Can I keep him? Boy, from an Egyptian standpoint, Pharaoh made a huge mistake in saying yes. And the little, uh, his, uh, his sister says, well, well can my, uh, I have a, a woman who could nurse this child. So now Moses' mother is getting paid to nurse and take care of her own baby. Wow, isn't God great? Her parents rebelled against Pharaoh's order, but obeyed God, and God rewarded their faith. Faith takes a stand. I'm not going to follow what Pharaoh says because Pharaoh is commanding me to commit murder. And they said, I'm not going to do it. They took a stand. Letter B, notice his own rejection his own rejection. Go back to Hebrews chapter 11 verse 24. So Moses is raised in Pharaoh's palace. He's given the finest of education. He's fed the, the best of food. He's given all of the extracurricular activities he wants to do. He lives like a prince. He is a prince growing up in a palace and uh, but he in his heart knows that he is a Hebrew boy and not an Egyptian verse 24 by faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughters. Go back to Exodus chapter 2 and look at verse number 11 with me. And it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown, that he went out unto his brethren, and he looked on their burdens, and he spied an Egyptian, smiting in Hebrew one of his brethren. So these... Jews are out there being slaves and they're being whipped by a taskmaster. And this one Egyptian man is just going a little too hard on the Hebrew for Moses' likings. Verse 12, and he looked this way, Moses, and that way. And when he saw that there was no man, he slew the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the second day, behold, two men of the Hebrews strove together. And he said to him, uh, that did the the wrong, wherefore smitest thou thy fellow? And he said, who made thee a prince and a judge over us? Intendest thou to kill me as thou killedest the Egyptians? And Moses feared and said, surely this thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard this thing, he sought to slay Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. You continue to read the story on your own, but he ends up meeting uh, Jethro. And Jethro has a daughter named Zipporah. And he marries Zipporah. And he has a, a son with Zipporah. And there he takes care of sheep on the back side of the desert. What happened here? He's raised in a palace. He He's set up for the rest of his life. You understand that if Moses wants to just go with the flow and reject his Hebrew heritage, and just embrace the Egyptian heritage, he had it made for the rest of his life. He didn't have to lift a finger. He would have had servants serving him for the rest of his life. And he maybe wouldn't have been the next Pharaoh, but he sure would have lived in royalty the rest of his life. But instead, he said, you know what? I'm not an Egyptian. I'm a Hebrew. Just a sidebar here. Just a sidebar. Where did Moses get this from? You know, um Hebrew culture way way back thousands of years ago, a mom would nurse her son until he was 4 years old. So Moses had a relationship with his mother up through the age of 4 and possibly beyond. Don't you think mom was teaching him to have faith in God from birth to 4, from birth to 4? Teaching him and instilling him the importance of loving God. And and, and these are your people. And and you're going to go live in that palace, but never forget your roots, son. Never forget where you came from. Moses becomes a young man. In fact, the Bible tells us in other passages that he was 40 years old when he smote the Egyptian. 40 years old he smote the Egyptian and what he was trained to do in 40 years as a as a ruler as a prince god had to take 40 years and train him on the back side of the desert how really to lead you see god does not want pastors to be the king of the castle that rules over the people god is looking for a pastor to be that loving shepherd who's down amongst the sheep loving them and guiding them and caring for them. A good shepherd smells like sheep. A good shepherd smells like sheep. And that's something that the Lord has used to challenge me. To make sure that I'm always down among the people. Loving them and caring for them. God had to retrain him. But uh, uh, that training happened because Moses took a stand. Don't tell me your faith is strong if you can't take a stand for the Lord at work. To get super practical. Hey, you open up your lunchbox you sit down at the break room table and you get your lunch out in front of you, do you actually pray where everyone can see you pray? I'm serious. I've seen people pray like this. Lord bless me, amen. Or they drop their fork and they reach down, Lord bless my food uh, to my body, amen. They're trying to avoid everyone seeing them pray for their food. Hey, look. You pray for your food, be open about it, and when you get done, open up the Bible and read God's Word and let everybody know you're a Christian. Take a stand. Take a stand. The greater the stand, number two, notice, the greater the suffering, faith's suffering. Here is where the rubber hits the road. If you're going to take a stand for Christ, I mean a real stand for Christ, you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer. Can I tell you why people don't take a stand for Christ? Because they don't want to suffer. You're going to lose friends. You may lose a work opportunity. Uh, uh, you may your, your reputation might take a shot. People might talk about you behind your back. People may run you down. Your family might disassociate from you on some level. Look, I've seen all these things in my lifetime. Uh, if you really, really, really take a fervent stand for Christ, some Christians may begin to back away and begin to create distance because you're too much of a zealot and you're too on fire for God. Now listen, we should never let our disposition offend anyone, but if you're taking a strong position in loving God and you're taking that stand, I promise you, you're going to suffer. Look at verse 25, Hebrews 11. It says, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. He uh, he had a choice here. Look at verse 26. Esteeming the reproach of Christ uh, uh, greater uh, riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. So for our younger listeners here this evening, I really want you to understand this. Here is what it came down to for Moses. He could enjoy the pleasures of living in sinful Egypt in the now and now. Or he could push away from Egypt and deal with the rejection of leaving Egypt and enjoy something far greater later. You could enjoy sin now and have regret later. Or you can push away from what's convenient to your flesh now And have a greater reward later. I'm going to illustrate this out several different ways for you here in a moment. Letter A, notice his perspective. His perspective. Look at verse 25 again. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy what? The pleasures of sin. He had two choices in front of him. I can enjoy the pleasure of sin now. Or I can enjoy the affliction now. I can enjoy affliction now and pleasure later, or I can enjoy pleasure now and affliction later. If I choose affliction from man, I will receive reward from God. If I choose uh, reward from man, I will choose later affliction from God. Would you rather God afflict you or man afflict you? Boy Moses had the perspective to see, I would rather suffer at the hands of man than the hands of God. I would rather suffer at the hands of man now and be rewarded by God later than to suffer uh, 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 than rather to enjoy the pleasure of man now and see the punishment of God later. Which choice do you want? Boy, I tell you when you lay it out there, Boy, if you really, are, if you have the right perspective, you choose to take the stand. You choose to do what's right, even if it's tough now. Even if it's tough now. Moses said, I'm not going to embrace being an Egyptian. Now, I want to make, take a moment and just uh, add this. Moses was wrong in killing that Egyptian taskmaster. He was wrong. He should not have done it. And I've always been under the impression that it was manslaughter. That he just hit him wrong and, you know, he he landed in the sand. But I went back and read the story again studying for this Bible study. He looked around to make sure no one was watching. He flat killed the man. He murdered the man in hot blood. Now, that was wrong. You know, it was just a couple of books later. Actually, later in the book of Exodus, many years later for Moses, God would have him pinned down in stone, Thou shalt not kill. But do you know that principle had already been written in Moses' heart? He knew it was wrong. I'm not going to stand up here tonight and justify Moses' sin. Moses was wrong. But here's what I'll say. The intent behind why Moses did what he did was right. What do I mean? Moses was rejecting Egypt and embracing the Hebrews. And while he took it too far, that was right. That was right. Because Moses was a Hebrew. Not an Egyptian. And he said, I will not remain an Egyptian. Oh, I've been raised in a palace. Oh, yes, I I, I know all of the etiquette of a prince. I've been called a prince. I've been pampered like a prince. But I am not going to be an Egyptian. He had the right perspective. Letter B, notice his payoff. His payoff. When we take a stand, we will suffer. But after we suffer, boy, there is great reward. Look back at verse 26. Esteeming the reproach of Christ, or for Moses, Messiah, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. He said this, I would rather be associated with the Messiah, the coming Messiah, than I would with the title of prince. Wow. Because being attached to Messiah meant suffering. Let's keep reading. For he had respect unto the receiving of the reward, unto the payout of the reward, unto the recompense of the reward. He said, look, I'm going to take a stand and I'm going to suffer, but there's going to be a payday. There's going to be a reward one day. I'm going to take a stand that's going to bring about suffering, but through that suffering, there's going to be a great reward." I want to illustrate this a few different ways tonight. Brother Joe, if you could, um, uh, it's going to take me about five to ten minutes to get uh, to to this spot here. But I put on the, in the AV booth uh, folder, a a picture there. Um, uh, It begins with the letter W. You'll see it when you get to it, okay? Um, And just add that to the slideshow for the next slide. Let me give you some examples here. Uh, The apostles of Christ. Would you say they took a stand? Is that an accurate statement? They took a stand? Did they take a stand for what was right? After Christ rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, He said to them there on the mount, He said, Go forth and preach The gospel. And he said, you're going to be persecuted. And they had no idea the level of persecution that awaited them, but they did what was right. By faith, these men stood up to the religious structure of their day, and they decided that they would proclaim Christ no matter the consequences. They took a stand, and guess what happened next? They suffered. Stephen was stoned. James and Paul had their heads chopped off. Philip, Jude, Bartholomew, and Simon were all crucified. James the Less was stoned, and then he had his brains bashed out of his head with a club. Matthias was stoned and beheaded. Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross. Mark was drugged to pieces behind a horse. Peter was crucified upside down. Thomas was killed by having a spear ran through his body. Luke was hanged, and John was boiled in oil. They took a stand. The greater the stand, the greater the suffering. But you know what? The greater the suffering, the greater the reward. You see this? Stand, suffering, reward. What is the reward for their stand and their suffering? You're sitting in it right now. Why do we have a church 2,000 years later? Because these men were willing to take a stand. And because of that, billions of lives have been touched by the gospel of Jesus Christ for the stand they took in their day. You know, what we need are young men and young women who will say, I'm not just going to go with the flow of the culture. I'm not going to just do what's popular I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to swim against the stream, against the current. I'm going to do what's right. Even if no one else does it, I'm going to take a stand. And even if it means I suffer, I know one day God will reward me. I have two other examples here I'll give you. The next one is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. What kind of stand did He take? He left heaven's throne and He took a stand against all of the sin of humanity. He did right, and He was hated for it. Would you say Christ took a pretty big stand? Would you say that Christ suffered dearly for that stand? They put Him on a cross. You know the story. They ran nails through His hands and His feet. They belittled Him. They bashed Him in every sense of the term. They berated Him. They tried to tear down His reputation. They did everything to destroy Him. But because He took a stand, He suffered. And because He suffered, you and I are saved. The greater the stand, the greater the suffering, the greater the suffering, the greater the reward. Let me give you one more example. You can put that picture up there for me if you found it. William Tyndale. Raise your hand for me if you know anything about William Tyndale. A few of you do. Raise your hand if you don't want to feel left out. Amen. All right. William Tyndale um he lived uh he was born in the 15th century 1494 i believe is the year he was born the catholic church worked hard to keep the bible away from common people their attitude then and really still today was this don't worry with reading the bible we'll tell you what it says that's still the attitude of the catholic church But it was so much so then that the Bible was not in a language for a common man to read. You know, I got up this morning and picked up my Bible and sat at my desk and I had my devotions. I read my Bible. And I hope you had your devotions this morning. Don't take for granted that you have a Bible in English. William Tyndale is a big part of the reason why you do. He had to take a massive stand so that we could have a Bible in our language. The the oppression of the Catholic Church caused Martin Luther, I'm not the biggest fan of Martin Luther, but I'll say this about him, it caused him to publish his 95 theses on the Catholic Church door, as well as translate the Bible into the German language. William Tyndale was a linguist and Greek scholar who saw the need to get the Bible into the English language. But, oh my goodness, was he going to have to take a massive stand to do this. Tyndale was well prepared for the task. Spallation, who is a friend of Martin Luther, wrote in his diary of what Professor Hermann Balsius Bausch, told him about Tyndale and his New Testament. Here is what was said about Tyndale. The work was translated by an Englishman, staying there with two others, a man so skilled in the seven languages, Hebrew, Greek, Latin, Italian, Spanish, English, and French, that whichever language he spoke, you would have supposed it was his native tongue. Wow! He was a smart guy. But God did not give William Tyndale the ability to speak multiple languages for him to build his own kingdom. God gave him that Ability for such a time as this. By the time Tyndale was betrayed by his friend, imprisoned and nearly frozen during a cold winter in his cell, he had translated the New Testament into English along with some other Old Testament books and had trained at least two others to carry on his work, but he wasn't finished. You see, because Mr. Tyndale took a stand against the Catholic Church and the Roman uh, uh, Catholic uh, 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 hierarchy that, if you know much about history, you know the Catholic Church had a whole lot of pull with governments back then, and they were very political. Um, uh, through those connections, the Catholic Church had William Tyndale burnt at the stake because he just refused to stop. With the flames melting his skin off his body, His dying words to the king of England were this, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. He died in 15, let's see, I believe it was 1516. 1536. Yeah, 1536. King James would begin to assemble a team of people just a couple of decades later. And you know what? Those 54 men, that would take to the job of translating the Bible into the English language, do you know what their number one resource was? It was the Tyndale Bible. Much of the Bible that you have in your hands was not translated by the King James translators. It was translated by William Tyndale. And they altered it here and there before they put their stamp of endorsement on it. But the rigorous process of the translation of the Bible William Tyndale took a stand to make that happen. You know, one day, some preacher's going to stand over my body like they will yours. Or my ashes. I, I won't get cremated, but some of you may. I don't plan to get cremated. After I'm gone, they may cremate me. I don't know. I hope the angel says no. So hopefully you're around to keep that from happening. One day, uh, some preacher's going to have a, a funeral service for me. And they're gonna say a bunch of kind words about me. They're gonna haul my body off somewhere and throw it in a ditch or a tomb and and, you know, whatever. I'm gone at that point. Can I tell you something? A hundred years after I'm dead, no one's probably gonna know who I am. And no one's probably gonna know who you are. We all work so hard to, to, to remain relevant. We all want to build a name for ourselves, And maybe not you, but the average person does. They want to climb the ladder at work. And for me, I'm a pastor. Can I tell you what the temptation with pastors are? That when I go to one of these big nationwide conferences, that everyone knows who I am or that I'm invited to preach. You know, it's the same sin as wanting to be drunk on fame in the secular world. And we do it because we want the eyes on us. And that's wrong. That's wrong. You know what God needs are Christians who will take a stand against the radical culture. I mean a hard stand. I don't mean you go out there and you do you act in a way that's unchristian. But I mean you, you stand for the Lord in the face of persecution, and you refuse to back down. To these three young people here this evening, and to those that are watching online, I fear what America is going to be in 50 years. I do. I pray this nation sees revival and we steer away from the edge. But can I tell you where I think this country is going? I think it's going right over the edge of the cliff before you three are dead, if you live to be 70, 80, 90 years old, there's a good chance that to be a Christian means jail time. I mean it. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm not trying to speak in hyperbolic terms or crazy over-the-top terms. This is the direction this country's headed right now. Listen, it might happen before I die. I'm only 36. Brother Jake, we're young, man. Everyone else in here is old. We're young. I'm teasing everyone, teasing you guys. You gonna take a stand? You say, Oh, I can't do that. I'm gonna to have to suffer. Yep. Aren't you glad Jesus took a stand and suffered for you? Aren't you glad Mr. Tyndall took a stand and suffered so we could have a Bible? Aren't you glad the apostles took a stand and suffered so we could have church? Boy, those are just three examples. History is littered with hundreds and hundreds of more people who took a stand. And we know who Mr. Tyndale is today. Not that he cares, but he stands out. Not because he he was able to, to win everyone over. He stands out because he went against the grain and he accomplished something great. But boy, he had to suffer to make it happen. This is what Moses did. He took a stand. And it meant being thrown out of Egypt. His exit from Egypt. And he suffered. Boy, you go back and you read the account of Moses leading the children of Israel through the desert. Oh my goodness. My worst day at White Oak Baptist Church as a pastor does not hold a candle to what that poor man had to put up with. With those murmuring, complaining millions of Israelites. That poor man. Don't you ever read about Moses falling and tripping and doing something wrong and go, well, I can't believe he struck that rock the second time. Uh, I probably would have struck it ten times. I'm just telling you the truth. He had his hands full. He had a tough job. Moses took a stand, though. And because of that, they were set free from Egypt. Oh, he suffered. But here we are 4,000 years later. 3,000 years later, however long it's been. We still know his name. Not because Moses was great, but because Moses walked by faith. You know what it is? It's that walking a tightrope, believing that below this tightrope is an invisible net called God. And he's going to catch me if he wants me to be caught. I think of the three Hebrew boys. You remember they took the stand? And then uh, they were brought before um, Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar said, he said, um, uh, maybe you guys didn't understand. Do Did you hear the music play? You heard the music, right? You're supposed to bow. Okay, we're going to cue the music, boys. And oh, hold up, hold up king. We're not going to bow. Our God is able to keep us from those flames. But even if he doesn't do it, we're not going to bow. You know, faith says, God, I'm going to take a stand. If my reputation, my name gets smeared and I have to suffer, it doesn't matter because you know and I trust you. Number three, and lastly, notice faith's sight. Faith's sight. Go back to Hebrews 11 and look at verse 27. The Bible says, By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Let's take this verse apart a little bit at a time. He forsook Egypt. What does that mean to forsake Egypt? Some of you Bible scholars in the room this evening, I'm looking at some smart people. One of you Bible scholars tell me, what does Egypt represent generally in the Bible? Represents the world. So what application can we take verse 27 for us? Faith in a Christian rejects the world. Love not the world, any of the things that are in the world. If any man loved the world, the love of the Father is not in him. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. And the part of the life is not of the Father, but is of the world. We're to reject the world. Lust and pride. We're to reject it. You know what Moses said? I can have everything Egypt has to offer the rest of my life. Or I can follow Christ. This is easy now and hard later. This is going to be really hard now, but going to yield lots of results of positively later. He said, you know what? I'm going to forsake Egypt. And I'm going to walk the hard road and follow Christ. Hey, I, I got mad respect for him. You know, what he was, you know how he was able to do that? He had sight. He had sight to foresee what God wanted. Uh, go back to verse number 1 of Hebrews 11. Can we read it out loud together? No? He said now, not no. Thank you for not being rebellious. I know I said to be rebellious earlier, but not rebellious to me, to the world, Ms. Elizette. Uh, Lizette. All right, verse 1, ready? Now faith, everybody together, ready? Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. I'm going to put a quote up on the screen for you, and you, you can uh, fill in the quote on the back of your bulletin. Here it is. Faith behaves as though the future is the present, and the invisible is visible. Faith behaves as though the future is the present, and the invisible is visible. What if I told you, what if I told you that Jesus was coming back tomorrow with his awards? The Bible says he's going to come with them in hand, right? What if I told you he was coming back tomorrow, and I could prove it to you? Now, I can't, scripturally. But in a hypothetical, if I could prove it to you, and you knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow in the... Award ceremony for your life tomorrow is going to be dependent on how you behave today. Boy, it would probably change a little bit of how we behave. You know what faith says? Faith says I'm going to behave right now as though the future is right now. Am I standing in the throne room of heaven at the great, rather at the uh, at the judgment seat of Christ? No. Am I going to do that tomorrow? No. I'm probably not going to do that tomorrow either. But faith says, I'm going to behave today as though that's going to happen five minutes from now. Moses was saying, look, I, I, I can either enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, because sin is fun for a season, or I can behave as though the future is right now. Look back at verse 27 with this idea of, of, of the, the evidence of things not seen. Look at verse 27, the end of the verse. For he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Moses, why are you taking a stand as a prince? Can you see God? Well, I I can't, but through eyes of faith I can. And I'm going to do what's right. Two uh, two thoughts, and I'll I'll shut it down. Two two illustrations here. The first one, I coached basketball for years. I, I miss it. I really do. Uh, I coached basketball at Rosedale Baptist Church for a couple of years, and I coached it at Granite Baptist Church for three years. And every year you get to the end of the season, you have an awards banquet. And you give out the MVP and the Coach's Award and the Most Improved. You give out all these awards. And, you know, you give out some certificates to all the kids who played on your team, and you, you find some nice things to say about each player. But every year at the award banquet, you had that kid who did nothing all year. I mean, they showed up to practice late. They got their minutes cut. They didn't play very much. They just sort of, you know, they were on the team more for the fun than the winning and the playing. Then when you got to the award ceremony and they didn't get an award, you'd see them mope and pout around the rest of the night. You know why? They should have started the season as though the award ceremony was tomorrow. And if they had done that, they would have worked hard. Christian how about you? we need to behave as though the award ceremony is tomorrow The next time that you're put in a place where you can take a stand for what's right do you have eyes that see faith eyes that see the invisible as though it's visible Here's what I mean there's sin in your home and you need to take a stand against the sin in your home. Would you handle it any different if God was manifested in the flesh sitting on the couch? How about at school? How about with your siblings or the kids in the neighborhood? How about your friends? They use some word. You're watching TV and something comes up on that TV screen that doesn't please the Lord. Would you handle it any different if God was there in the flesh? Well, that's eyes that take the invisible and treat it as though it's visible. Faith's sight. Moses took a stand because he had eyes that were spiritual. His stand led to suffering, and his suffering led to a great reward for people for millennia. Christ took a stand, and because of his stand he suffered, and through his suffering we're saved. You know, some of you here this evening... God is going to call you to a ministry of suffering. I think God calls all of us to a ministry of suffering sometimes. Some people it's more of a permanent position. Take a stand and you suffer. Sufferings can manifest themselves a lot of ways. You know what Christians do? They push away from suffering. I don't want to suffer. I don't want to suffer. I don't want to suffer. With all this in mind... Can we understand Philippians 3.10 a little bit better? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. Being made conformable to his death. Through our suffering, others benefit. I hope you've been able to see that tonight. Moses was a man of great faith. We have much we can learn from him. Amen?